the whole earth is full of his glory. And as we get into the text this morning of, of the Bible and we consider what the Lord has for us this morning, I can't help but want to draw your attention to the fact that God Almighty and Jesus, his son, are on the throne right now. And uh, whatever's happening in your life, it's completely under control. He knows what he's doing. He's got a plan. He's got a plan not just for the universe, but he's got a plan for your life. And he's working diligently, and it's all going to come to pass. Not one thing that God has planned for you will go undone. And so I want to encourage you this morning that God Almighty is working. And he's on his throne, and I can guarantee you he's completely relaxed. There's not a, a little bit of worry or anxiety in him at all. And he is moving forward aggressively with his eternal plan, and it's going to be glorious. I want to uh, turn your attention to 1 Corinthians 15. I'd like to read a passage of Scripture there this morning as we continue our study as it relates to heaven. And as you're turning there, I just want to welcome you. I know some of you are, are here for the first time and visiting, and uh, it's our desire that you would know the love of Christ and the joy of the fellowship of the saints and that you are absolutely welcome and loved here. And uh, we are a praying church, and we take pray prayer seriously and our, and our commitment and our privilege to pray for each other. And I would uh, invite anyone that needs prayer after this service for anything, whether you want prayer for healing or prayer for a problem that you're going through or prayer for wisdom or anything, uh, our leaders would love to pray for you and with you. Uh, and God, if nothing else, is a God that answers prayer. And so um, I want to invite you to, to take advantage of that as well, but we're certainly glad that you're here. I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about the resurrected body, which is part of our topic this morning. And so I'll be reading from verse uh, 35 and then uh, going to the very end of the chapter. Paul has made a case for the fact that the dead will indeed be raised from the dead, and he goes on to say a rhetorical question. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is of one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. 
I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Father, we want to thank you for your word this morning, and we want to magnify your name. We want to properly understand who you are, what you've done, and what your plans are for the future. And we are so eager to discover more about heaven, God, what life will be like, and this morning as we consider what our bodies will be like, what our surroundings will be like, Father, we're excited to explore from your word the possibilities. And so, God, we lift up this time this morning, and I pray that you would raise our eyes, Lord, that you would help us lift our eyes from the, the temporal issues that sometimes are, are so pressing in our hearts and our minds, but I pray that, God, for this morning, we would be able to lift our eyes and see beyond and see what's ahead, that we might see the finish line. And God, in seeing the finish line and clearing the fog of our destiny and our destination, God, that you might help us to run our race and to finish well. And so, Father, use this message to bring honor to your name and encouragement to your saints. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Well, if you've been here for the last few weeks, you know that we're going through a series on, on heaven. And, uh, and I was asked about a year ago to, to do this series on heaven because a friend of mine said that, boy, you know, we're all following the Lord and we're reading the Word every day and we're witnessing to our friends and we're, we're, we're fighting the good fight, but could you kind of explain to us where we're headed at the end of this thing? You know, we know the eschatology, we know the order of the end times things, but very few people have spoken on this issue of what will heaven itself be like. And without a knowledge of what heaven is like, I think that the church is, has been handicapped and stunted in its pursuit of God because we just don't really understand or comprehend the glorious things that are ahead. And so we've been spending the last few weeks talking about heaven. We began our series talking about the misconceptions that we have about heaven, about harps and clouds and cherubim and pearly gates and Peter standing there and, uh, and all the jokes that we know about, about heaven and gaining entrance to heaven. And we talked about where our misconceptions come from, from uh, Plato's philosophies about the fact that he really believed that, that anything material, tangible, you could touch or feel or taste or see was evil. And spiritual things were immaterial. In other words, you couldn't touch them, you couldn't see them, you couldn't handle them, and you couldn't smell them. And as a result, the Gnostic heresy developed in the early church in the first and second century that plagued the early church. And many of the, the New Testament epistles were written to counter this false teaching that, uh, that first and foremost said that Jesus could not have actually come in the flesh because all flesh is evil. 
And so the Gnostic heretics picked up on Plato's philosophy and carried it through. And so the church has been fighting this, this teaching, this false teaching for really millennia, that the physical can't really be good. And so the end things that we're looking at in the kingdom to come must be somehow spiritual, something intangible, like floating, like ghost-like figures, uh, you know, uh, arranging themselves and, and partnering with God in this future kingdom. But as we've been discovering, uh, there are different dimensions of what God is doing, and we most certainly will be tangible and physical, and we'll be talking about that this morning. The second series we talked about was the eternal home, and we made a distinction between the past heaven, which was in Abraham's bosom, and then we talked about the present heaven, which is in the third heaven, also called the paradise of God, which is in some dimension beyond where we can see. It's above our, uh, the, the envelope around planet Earth and beyond the stars and the sun and the moon, and beyond that, in the heavens of heaven, is this place of God. And we talked about how it's not the final resting place of believers, but it's simply a staging area for the consummation of the final things in the kingdom of God. And then we talked last week about our new environment, that heaven, to the surprise of many, is actually going to be right here on a redeemed, restored, renewed, refreshed planet Earth. And the culmination of all of those things will be the kingdom of God with the saints of God who have already made their transition into the kingdom, into the third heaven, into paradise, will be lowered from that third heaven in the celestial city, a city that's dimensions are described for us in the book of Revelation as being 1,400 miles cubed. It's an enormous space, and we spent quite a bit of time last week talking about it, about the, the throne room of God, about the, the tree of life. We talked about the river of life and the impact and the consequence of all of these wonderful things and how that celestial city is just the launching pad for the rest of our existence because that celestial city like the temple of God has 12 gates that will never be closed and we will have access to the entire universe, the entire globe, to serve our creator, to explore, to enjoy, and to rejoice in. It's going to be quite a life that we have. Now this morning I want to talk about our new life in terms of our body and in terms of relationships, all kinds of different things. And, um, and I have to confess to you right now this morning that we're not going to make it through this entire teaching. Uh, I tried last night and I only got halfway. And uh, there was so much information that I just couldn't get through it. And rather than trying to, uh, to skim over things, we're going we're gonna to take two weeks on this particular lesson. We'll get through the first two major points this morning. I want to talk to you first about the overall conditions of this new earth, beginning with its climate. Because the climate of this new earth is going to be a global temperate climate. Now, why do I say that? And what evidence do I have for that? Well, I go back to the book of Genesis in chapter 1, where we find that Adam and Eve were naked, both unashamed, and, uh, and quite comfortable. Now, we don't have any indication in the Bible that there was any plan for them to make winter clothes or to, uh, to get fans or some, some kind of a cooling system in place for the hot summers. I believe that the climate that God provided in the Garden of Eden in his first creation, in that initial work that God did, that God proclaimed to be very, very good, that in that climate, there was a temperate climate that I believe is probably not all that dissimilar from what we have here on this island, maybe a little bit less humid on a day like today. But I believe that the, the climate that God provided for Adam and Eve was such that if they had never sinned, they would have been fine being naked their whole lives and would have been quite comfortable, never feeling too hot and never feeling too cold. 
Now, it's interesting because in Genesis chapter 8, verse 22, there's a, there's a verse that says, As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. So he's saying that as long as this earth endures, there are going to be these climactic changes. There are going to be the seasonal changes. We're going to have these high temperatures and we're going to have very low temperatures. We're going to have uh, heat waves. We're going to have freezing as long as the earth endures. And that's the key phrase because that word endures has to do with eternity and it will not endure for eternity. We know from scripture that the earth is going to be destroyed. It is going to be not completely destroyed and thrown away, but it is going to be burned with fire. It will not ever flood again, as God promised in, in the book of Genesis, chapters 6 through 9, but it will be purified with fire and, uh, and everything on this planet will be removed and purified by the fire of God. But the Bible tells us that because God is going to restore this planet to its original intent and then some, we can have confidence that God is going to be restoring to this planet, to this heaven on earth, that clim climate that they had in the book of Genesis. Now, which brings me to my second point, point about pre-flood hydrology. Hydrology has to do with, with, uh, with the, the transfer of, of moisture from the clouds to the mountains to the streams, to the rivers, back down to the ocean, and then evaporation again takes place and the cycle continues, and that's the study of hydrology. Now, it's interesting because when we look at the Old Testament about what the pre-flood condition of the earth was and the pre-sin condition of earth is that there was no such thing as hydrology because there was no rain. And as a result of no rain, uh, you didn't have uh, the, the, the types of rivers and you didn't have the bodies of water. In fact, the Bible tells us that it was during the flood time that we had these tremendous uh, shifts and changes in the earth's geography. We've got mountains just bursting forth and, 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 and raising to heights that were never known on the planet before, uh, before the flood. And then we have the, the seas giving up their water from underneath the planet, from, from underneath the, the, uh, the, uh, the firm, firmness of the earth. And suddenly these streams were bursting forth and this flood took place. So the canopy around the globe dropped its contents and then from underneath the earth, Tremendous amounts of water uh, were flooding the surface of the, of the planet. And as a result, there was a collapsing and, and, the, and the forming of these great bodies of water that we call oceans today. And so it was a result of the fall that we have these tremendous changes in temperature. Temperature changes, by the way, are what cause wind and eventually what cause storms. And it was since the time of the flood that now we have rain. And we'll be talking about that more as well. But part of what I wanted to address, I touched on last week, and I want to uh, spend a little bit more time on this morning, of great importance to people that live on Kauai, is the Bible says in Revelation 21, uh, verse 1, that there will no longer be any sea in this new heaven and this new earth. And, um, and I've had a bunch of you guys, especially the surfing guys and some of the women that surf as well, come up to me and just kind of, please tell me there's going to be surf in heaven, you know? Please tell me that there's, you know, what are we going to surf on? You know, what is God going to do? Or is there going to be a big wave machine, you know, in some pool out there? God's got to somehow know that we love surfing. And is there going to be any provision for it? And so, as you know, I've told you I'm praying and I'll, I'm going to study the scripture uh, vigorously and see if I can come up with an answer. And, uh, and I have come up with an answer that I'll share with you here briefly. I have to begin with a definition of what a sea is. A sea is a large body of salt water. I know it sounds basic, but it, it, it's so important to realize that we're dealing with salt water here, 
that's what the ocean is. Um, interestingly, I don't believe that salt water existed prior to the flood because it's the rain falling on mountains and on land that, that sweeps away with it mineral content that over time began to raise the salinity level in the ocean bodies. But in, in the, uh, the pre-flood, pre-fall period of time, uh, the Bible tells us that there, there were seas, but if, I, if you go back and look in the actual uh, verbiage in the Hebrew in Genesis, it means a large body of water because there isn't a word in Hebrew for salt sea. It's a large body of water. And yet in the text of the scriptures in the Old Testament, it's often referred to as seas. So what about surfing? Well, Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 8 the Bible tells us a very interesting uh, thing about this river of life flowing from the throne of God in this celestial city. And this is what it says. This water flows toward the eastern region and down toward the Arabah, which means the desert, where it enters the sea. And when it empties into the sea, the water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. And so I'm, I'm speculating, uh, but my thoughts on this as it regards to, uh, in regard to surf is that there will be surf in heaven. It just won't be in salt water. And, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the most invigorating and refreshing things that I enjoy doing besides being in the water, in the ocean, and surfing is taking a shower afterwards uh, at the beach. And I'm telling you, after I do that, I just feel like a million bucks. There's something about water and then getting cleaned up. I don't really like getting in my car all salty and drying all salty, uh, but I really love going surfing, getting out, washing off, and I just feel terrific. And, and so we have the best of all worlds. We have the opportunity to surf, but we also have the opportunity to surf not just in fresh water, pure water you'll never, have, you'll never know, but also we're surfing in water that's been touched by the river of life flowing from the throne of God that in itself has life. So I just can't even imagine what it's going to be like to surf in water that is not only fresh, but its source is the river of life coming from the throne of God that itself brings life to everything it touches. The Bible also tells us that there won't be any more disasters, no natural disasters. In Isaiah 60, verse 18, it says, No longer will violence be heard in your land, referring to Israel, no ruin or destruction within your borders. So tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes and droughts and storms and floods, all these natural disasters that, that we endure, that we suffer through, will be a thing of the past. Why? Because we're going to have a more temperate climate. These, these, the winds that come from the changes in temperature differences across the ocean when it heats up and when the, the mountains have ice and snow on them and the, the, we've got the, the swirling of wind globally that's taking place is going to be significantly reduced because of the temperate climate and as a result, the disasters that we have suffered through on this fallen, sinful planet will be a thing of the past. I believe also that we're going to experience pre-fall, pre-sin productivity that we just can't even imagine. The Bible tells us that in the book of Genesis, chapter um, 3, verses 17 through 19, Jesus speaking to, uh, to Adam in particular says, Because of your sin, Adam, I am going to curse the ground. You are going to reap a benefit from your work, but it's going to come at the expense of sweat and much labor, 
and you are going to have a marginal return compared to what I intended for you, but you will till the ground. You will work this land. Interestingly, in the very last chapter of the Bible, in, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 3, it says, no longer will there be any curse. The curse will be absolutely lifted. I tell you, this is so exciting for me because we're not just talking about agriculture here, but we're talking about all the work that mankind does on the planet is hard work. Any work that man or woman does on this planet comes with sweat and effort and agony and sometimes failure and defeat. That kind of work will be a thing of the past. The work that we will be doing in the kingdom to come will be so profitable that we will basically just, if you can think of it in an, in an agrarian way, basically just kind of throwing out seeds and walking away and coming back and having it just bloom. There's no weeds. There's no, there's no invasive species. We don't have to spray. We don't have to fertilize. We just throw it out there and come back when the, when the season is right and there the beautiful crops have come you know, thousand-fold, 10,000-fold, it's just going to be that easy. Now, that means more to us than simply planting seeds. I believe that the work that God has for us planned in the kingdom of God is going to be stupendous. It's going to be unbelievable. It's going to be a great honor. But I have to tell you that before I did a lot of my, my study on this topic, I, I had conversations with God and I'd see that we had to work and, and God is going to reward people and he's going to give them uh, dominion over certain uh, responsibilities, some over cities, some over countries. God is going to be giving that responsibility to the saints. And quite frankly, I'm thinking to myself, you know, when I get to heaven, I want to be on a vacation. You know, I want to, I want to be, I just want to be on a, you know, maybe 10,000 year vacation for a while to get myself kind of rejuvenated after all the work here. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, life is hard here. Just keeping things maintained, taking care of your house, taking care of your family, paying the bills, keeping the car, you know, running, uh, just maintaining the things that are related to work, and in my case, to ministry, in your case, to the things that God has you doing. Just the basics of doing that is exhausting without even thinking about advancing anything in our life at all. And yet, when I think about being in the kingdom of God and serving in a capacity where everything is easy and, and the smallest of efforts produces this incredible outcome. I think that's exciting to be a part of something like that. And so the productivity that was lost due to the fall of Adam and Eve, God says will be restored because the curse on our work will be lifted. Can you imagine? You will never fail in the kingdom of God. Can you imagine you will never be up at night being anxious about a meeting you're going to have the next day? You'll never be worried about whether your plan is going to take you into poverty or into wealth. You will never, ever worry about your work again. Your work will bring you maximum joy and pleasure like something that you've never imagined the most stellar accomplishment of your life and riding the peak of that moment when you succeeded at something. Imagine the greatest moment and then imagine 10,000 times that and that's your normal day at work in the kingdom of God, the joy that you have that's awaiting you because God is going to restore our pre-fall productivity. What about pre-fall animal life? Well, if the new heaven and the new earth is the best of everything that this old earth has and more, then we can expect to have animal life there. I spent time talking about that last week, uh, but I want to talk about it a little bit more this week because I believe that when God created 
the heavens and the earth in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, he did a fabulous job. He congratulates himself by saying it was very good. And if you look through the text of Scripture, God has a passion for animal life. I mean, after all, it was his idea. It was his creativity that made all of these various species. And by the way, the Bible lists 120 species of animals in it. God talks about the importance of, in Proverbs of mankind caring for the animals that are in, in our charge, in our responsibility. That God talks about sparrows. He talks about, he used donkeys, uh, you know, to, to transport Jesus and used donkeys to speak. He, he used all kinds of various animal life to accomplish his purposes. And we think about Jonah and the great fish. God knows even when a sparrow falls to the ground. The book of Ecclesiastes and also Job says that God is aware of even when, when wild animals give birth in the hills. No one else knows about it, but God is there watching, attending to those animals. And I think, my goodness, the Lord loves animal life. And God created his original creation to include a vast array of animals that are creeping animals and animals that are, are, are on the ground and, and flying in the air and in the oceans and in the bodies of waters that God has created and in the rivers and streams. And I believe that God is going to restore that in his redeemed planet. And there will be animals of every kind in abundance according to Genesis 1. I believe also that the animals will become vegetarian once again. Why do I say that? Well, we go to Isaiah 65 verse 25 the first part of the verse, when it talks about the fact that Jesus is going to, God is going to restore and recreate a new heaven and a new earth. And just following that, it says the wolf and the lamb will feed together, which is obviously unusual, but also that the lion will eat straw like the ox. Now, if you talk to anybody that knows anything about animal life, they're going to say, well, a, a lion is not designed. Their jaws aren't even designed for it. Their teeth aren't designed for it. They're carnivorous. They, they can't eat straw. Well, all I can tell you is the Bible says that God is going to make it happen. Either he's going to change their, 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 their capacity or that all the scientists were wrong about what lions can actually eat. But it says in the text that lions will be vegetarians and all animal life, for that matter, will be vegetarian as well. And the animals as well will be tame. In the new heaven and the new earth, the most ferocious animals will be docile and I believe even friendly. The Bible tells us that... Um, that they, referring to the animal life that they just talked about, same passage, verse uh, 25 of chapter 65 of Isaiah, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. So I believe we're going to have a complete reversal going back to the Garden of Eden. And I don't believe that we have any indication whatsoever that Adam had any reason nor Eve to fear the animal life. I believe that they actually had friendship with them and they were able to, to pet them and to talk to them and, and that they were able to, um, to enjoy their company. And I believe it was just like Jurassic Park. I believe that that's what this new heaven and new earth is going to be like. I actually believe there will be every animal of every kind, even the ones that have been extinct, will be there. I believe that we will go back and there will be dinosaurs in this new heaven and new earth. So if any of you people are really into dinosaurs, I believe we will be able to be there, we'll be able to observe them and experience them and possibly even ride them. You know, I mean, I can just see us, you know, Tyrannosaurus Rex up on the neck. Hey, look at me, you know, down people down below. But I believe that God is going to restore all of these things to his original intent. And even what mankind has destroyed, God will once again 
restore, and redeem. And we will have absolutely no fear of any animal life, but just pleasure and joy in the presence of God's ultimate creation. Now, this next point, I know I'm really stepping out on a limb here, so I'm going to tell you right away, I'm, I'm speculating. But I believe it's quite possible that animals may be capable of communicating with us. What's my evidence for that? Well, I'm going to take you to three passages in particular. The first is Genesis 3.1. And it's where we are introduced to the serpent. The serpent comes in and begins to have a conversation with Eve and uh, has a very in-depth conversation. It's a theological conversation. It's a conversation about life and death. It's a conversation about the intent of the heart of God. It's a conversation about Satan trying to entice uh, in, in this serpent, trying to entice mankind to forfeit this tremendous plan that God originally had for us. And the thing that I find so interesting about this text that I've never ever heard a rational, reasonable explanation for that's satisfying at least to me is why in the world didn't Eve immediately fall back and scream and say, Adam, the snake is talking. <laughs> Have you ever wondered that? But they, she just falls into this conversation like it happened every day. And she's saying, well, that's not exactly what God said. He said this. And so they go on and have this conversation and she talks with the serpent about it and they have this long dialogue. And I'm sure at some level, even though we don't have record of it, that, that Adam was dialoguing as well. And they were both tempted and they both fell. So my question is, wouldn't you think that if it was the first time an animal ever spoke, she would have immediately been on her guard and said something terribly foreign and unusual is happening and they would have gone to God who comes in the cool of the day and had a conversation with him and said, you know, that snake over here was talking. You know, and God would have been able to say, oh, that's Satan because he entered that serpent and was speaking through him. But they didn't have any conversation like that. And I'm just speculating, Why? Why is there no register of concern or register of surprise in Adam and Eve when the serpent was talking? Is it possible that all the animals had the power to communicate? I'm just speculating. There's another occasion in Numbers 22, 28 through 30 where we are introduced to a prophet named Balaam who is a bit wayward and uh, has been clearly told by God not to do something uh, and then Balaam immediately ignores and disobeys that command of God and he begins to ride on his donkey that he's had for years to go to this place to pronounce a curse on the people of Israel. And so as he's making his way there, the donkey sees this angel with this flaming sword that Balaam, his eyes have not been opened to see. And yet the donkey sees this, this flaming sword and this, this awesome angelic presence. And so the, the donkey won't move. And so Balaam is whipping his donkey and then the donkey moves forward a little bit more and then just falls down. And Balaam whips the donkey some more and then, and then he's moving forward some more and there's a vineyard there and a wall. And so he, the, the donkey actually pushes up against the wall of this vineyard and crushes Balaam's leg so he can't move. And Balaam just completely flips out on this donkey and he's just beating this donkey and beating this donkey and beating this donkey. And the Bible says that, that the donkey opened its mouth and began to have a conversation with Balaam. God allowed this to be possible. And the donkey, interestingly, began to talk about history with Balaam. 
and said, haven't I been your faithful donkey all these years? I mean, you know, haven't I been a good donkey? You know how good a donkey I've been. Does this seem like me, Balaam, to be treating you like this, to be, you know, throwing a little temper tantrum here and crushing your leg? Does that even seem like me? Have I ever been an unfaithful donkey to you, Balaam? I mean, they're having this conversation. And, of course, even here in this text, we don't find Balaam. He's so incensed, he just starts speaking to this donkey back and saying, you know, then why are you treating me this way? And they have this conversation. But I think to myself, you know, God could have communicated to, to, to Balaam in, in, in a thousand different ways. He could have sent a prophet. He could have sent an angel. He could have just let Balaam see the angel. Why, why did God allow this text of Scripture to be there? I'm speculating, but it's entirely possible that God allowed this to let us see a window of what might have been in the past, of the, of the power of an animal to not only communicate, but also to have a history and a past, not necessarily a soul or a spirit, but to be able to communicate things that relate to the relationship that this donkey had with Balaam over all these years. And then in Revelation chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, some of the key figures in the kingdom of God are described as creatures, the four living creatures with the face of a bear and, a, and an eagle and, and a lion and a man. And so we've got these four living creatures that are mentioned in Ezekiel. They're mentioned in a number of actually Old Testament passages. And then we have them mentioned here in the book of Revelation repeatedly. And they're leading this, this worship of God. They're, they're leading the way in kneeling down and worshiping God and proclaiming the glory and the holiness of God and of the Lamb. And every time they do it, the 24 elders fall down, and then the hosts of heaven explode in worship to God and to the Lamb. And yet the leaders of this entire assembly are four living creatures who speak and declare the praises of God. So I'm speculating, but I think it's, a, it's an honorable thing and a valuable, worthwhile endeavor to think about what heaven might be like, to imagine, based on Scripture, what it might be like to be in a kingdom where, where we're in this new heaven and new earth where there's no sin and death and sorrow and all these things are a thing of the past and God uh, has a plan for us and, and we have these incredible uh, mansions that we're living in that, that occupy about a third of a cubic acre. It's an enormous amount. That's 71 cubic acres of land that each believer uh, is going to be occupying. And we're going to be in the presence of God and of the saints of the past. And then on top of that, we're going to be enjoying the animal life of the kingdom of God as he once intended it with the possibility of kind of cavorting with them and playing with them and enjoying their company and the possibility that we'll be able to actually converse with them. Now, as far-fetched as that all might sound, uh, most of us are familiar with C.S. Lewis's book. He was a great theologian besides the writer of, of, um, of the Chronicles of Narnia. And in the Chronicles of Narnia, that, that's the magical thing about that whole book is that all of the animals talk. The animals communicate. The animals have, uh, are able to converse with these uh, people from mankind and, uh, and actually to assist and help them. And so I just think it's interesting. I, I just can't even imagine. It's, again, I'm speculating. I don't want anyone going from here saying, this guy's preaching heresy at this church that we're going to be talking to animals. You know, he's Dr. Doolittle up there. Well, <laughs> all I want to say is I'm imagining, based on Scripture, that there's a possibility that we're going to be able to experience animal life in a way that we've never had before. Why do you think creation is groaning? 
All of creation, the Bible says, not even, the, even the, the trees and the plants, everything, the animal life, it's all groaning. Why? Because it has been reduced to a subpar level to the plan of God in his original intent. I want to talk about, for the balance of our time, the biological conditions on the new earth because the Bible repeatedly tells us over and over that we will have resurrected bodies. I like what Calvin, Calvin Miller says about death. Uh, our graves are merely doorways cut in sod. There's also Victor Hugo who says that the tomb is not a blind alley, it's a thoroughfare. It closes upon the twilight and opens upon the dawn. In other words, it's just a place of transition. That's all death is for us. As believers, that's all it is. It's a transition into the third heaven, into the kingdom of God until everything is completed, uh, at which time God will restore the earth and bring us along with his celestial city to planet earth again to rule and reign with him. But the Bible tells us that we're going to have glorified bodies and the Bible also tells us that Jesus Christ is our prototype. He's the progenitor of what it means to have a resurrected body. He was the first. He was the firstborn from among the dead, meaning he's the first guy to rise from the dead in the manner in which all mankind following him would rise from the dead and have a glorified body. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and also 48 through 50, a part of the passage we read this morning, is that Christ is the first fruits of all those who fall asleep. And it goes on to say, and just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man like we are now today, so we shall bear the likeness of the man from heaven, referring to Jesus Christ. Philippians 3 tells us that, that uh, Christ, by the power that enabled him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will become like his glorious body. So Jesus is the prototype. The Bible also tells us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, that we know that when he appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. So if we want to know what, the, what the, the body will be like, the glorified, resurrected body will be like, we don't have to look any farther than Jesus Christ himself. Why do we think that the body is going to be ghost-like, phantom-like, floating around on clouds? rather than something physical, tangible, material. I, I suggest to you that it goes back to Plato philosophy and also to Gnostic heresy that has taught us something that the Bible never even mentions. The idea that, the, that anything physical is evil is not in the Bible. All the Bible says is that what God made that was physical was very good, but because of sin, it was corrupted. But God is going to restore its original beauty and majesty and it will be physical, be physical, tangible life that will be a part of this new kingdom. Let me give you some, some background. Yeah, it's pretty exciting that, that that's going to be the case. Let me give you some background on Jesus. He's, the, he's the, the prototype. What was his life like after the resurrection? Well, in Luke 24... When the disciples saw Jesus for the first time after his resurrection, they were startled and frightened and they thought they were seeing a ghost. That's what the text says. And Jesus says to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your mind? He says, look at my hands and look at my feet. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. So we look at Jesus' resurrected body and he's telling them, I'm not a ghost. So we know right away as the progenitor, as the prototype of everything we're looking forward to, we're not going to be 
spirits floating around in a disembodied state. But God, when he resurrects our bodies and gives us a glorified body, it will be physical, it will be tangible. We'll also be able to walk and talk and work. How do we know that? Well, following the resurrection of Jesus Christ in Luke 24, 31, he was on the road to Emmaus and he talked to two disciples. He was walking along with them. So he actually had a physical body, so much so that they had no idea initially who he was. But they were having this conversation. In uh, John 21, by the Sea of Tiberias, Jesus had this long conversation about the kingdom of God with the disciples. In John 21, 9 through 13, we find that Jesus actually worked. He made breakfast for them. And he called them and he said, come on, guys, I've got breakfast waiting for you by the fire. Disembodied spirits don't make breakfast. Ghosts don't make breakfast. But Jesus in his glorified state was, was neither a ghost or anything else or an apparition. He was God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, restored with his glorified body. I believe also that we'll be able to eat and drink in the kingdom of God. Why? Well, because Jesus, after his resurrection, the disciples were still mystified as to whether this could possibly be Jesus again. And he'd already told them, touch me, feel me. I'm not a ghost. It's me, myself. It's I. I'm, I'm the one that's really here. And then he says, in order to prove his resurrection and that it was indeed him in a physical form, he said, do you have anything to eat here? And so they had some broiled fish there and they gave it to him and he ate it right in front of them. And they're just like, you know, they can't believe it because remember, they have been infiltrated. They have been saturated with Plato's philosophy. Plato lived three centuries before even the birth of Christ and it had saturated Greek philosophy to such a degree that they couldn't even imagine a resurrected Christ with a physical, tangible body. And so Jesus again and again had to prove, here, feel my side, touch me, let me eat something, I'll walk with you, I'll talk with you. He spent 50 days with them on the planet after his resurrection, proving indeed that he had risen from the dead. The Bible references many times the fact that we are going to have uh, resurrected bodies, that we are going to be able to eat and enjoy this kingdom of God and the wedding feast of the Lamb. And I remember uh, a number of years ago, I was uh, pastoring at a church in New York and the senior pastor and I during Sunday school would have these debates and they were instructive to help the church know the different issues when it came to, to uh, issues of faith that were debatable. And so we'd get up there and have these debates and take positions and, and uh, all in fun, you know, uh, make a point and make a case for our positions. And he made a case that, uh, that there wouldn't be any real feast in heaven. It was just symbolic of the joy that we would have. But the Bible is full of indication and very direct communication that we will be eating a feast in heaven. And thank God for that because that's one of the best things that we do as a church besides love each other and love God is eat together. We love it. I love it. And uh, we're going to be doing a lot of that in the kingdom of heaven. And so we'll be enjoying uh, that blessed feast that's talked about in Luke 14, the feast in the kingdom of God, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And I'm looking forward to that. I also believe that the Bible tells us that our, our bodies will be recognizable. How do we know that? You know, sometimes people ask me, well, when we get to heaven, will we even know who anybody is? I mean, we're going to have these glorified bodies. Or are we going to have name tags? How will we know? But it's interesting that when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, Mary immediately recognized him in John 20, verse 16. And in uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, 
They didn't recognize Jesus immediately, but I, I would uh, conjecture that the reason is, is that they just couldn't even imagine Jesus being alive. And they were in such grief and possibly Jesus, uh, you know, for his own purposes, maybe cloaked his face a bit as they were walking along the road uh, with, the, with his uh, shawl. But in Luke 24, 31, it says that they recognized him and they were absolutely blown away that it was Jesus. When, when Peter uh, was by the Tiberias Sea, and he was in the boat and he heard someone calling to them and saying, how's the fishing? It says in that text that he immediately recognized that it was Jesus. So Jesus being the prototype of all mankind and the resurrected life, I believe that we also will have the ability to be recognized and also recognize one another. I like what the Westminster Confession of Faith says in this regard. It says, all the dead shall be raised up with the self-same bodies and none other. In other words, we're going to recognize one another. And I find that very comforting. You know, we're not going to be losing our identity. We'll know who people are. Uh, and, and one of the wonderful things is we're going to be whole, which brings me to my next point, is that there will be no sickness or disease or sorrow of any kind. The deaf will hear, the blind will see, the dumb will sing, and the lame will be able to run, according to Isaiah 35. Any defect that a man or woman has will be corrected at that time. Our bodies, according to 1 Corinthians 15, will be eternal, will be glorious, and will be powerful. St. Augustine, who wrote The City of God, says this about these glorified bodies. He says, The body shall be of that size which it either had attained or should have attained in the flower of its youth. In other words, he's, he's expecting uh, that our bodies will be in their prime, we're not going to be little children and we're not going to be old people walking around, but we will be in our prime, in our resurrected glory. And it goes on to say that, that we shall enjoy the beauty that arises from preserving symmetry and proportion and all its members. In other words, everything is going to be proportional, perfect in, our, in the way that our bodies are made and even in appearance. Overgrown, overweight, uh, he has a nice way of putting it, over, overweight, uh, but he says overgrown or emaciated, you know, very thin or small or tiny people, need not fear that they shall be in heaven of such a figure as they would not even be in this world if they could help it. So in other words, what he's saying in kind of old English is that you're going to look how you want to look. You know, it, there's certain things that everybody in here, I don't care how beautiful you are, how handsome you are, there's something about your body that if you could change, you'd say, well, I don't, don't really want to, you know, say it too loud, but yeah, I have something I'd like to change in my body. I don't like this part of me or that part of me. My nose is too big. My ears are too floppy. Whatever it is, I don't have enough hair. I've got too much hair. There are all kinds of things that, that we would change. I'm too fat. I'm too thin. Am I going to have to live with this in heaven? And what I want to tell you, saints, is that you're going to be the perfection of what God intended for you in his glory and in his wonderful plan for you. God has this unbelievable plan. When you get to heaven, you're going to be so excited and so relieved and so overjoyed at how you look. Everyone is going to be coming up to you and say, you look great. You look fabulous. And that's going to be our destiny because God is going to perfect what has been so marred by sin in this world. The other thing I want to talk on for a few moments is that we will maintain our identity we find repeatedly that Jesus identifies people. He identifies Lazarus, who was in Abraham's bosom. He identifies Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are in the third heaven. As a believer, the Bible says that your name and my name are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
we are not going to lose our identity. We are not simply going to go to heaven and somehow just blend in with this massive community and be lost and not know anyone. We will have an identity that we have today and we will carry that forward with us. Job 19, a very interesting passage. Listen to this. One of the most powerful passages about redemption, by the way, from Job, who was uh, uh, chronologically the first book of the Bible. It says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. Isn't this interesting? Job is saying that in the end, the Redeemer will stand upon this earth. Exactly what the scripture says, the new heaven and the new earth. He goes on to say that, and after my skin has been destroyed, in other words, after he has died, yet in my flesh I will see God. So he's saying exactly what I'm talking about, that the prototype of Christ indicates that we will once again be clothed with, with physical, tangible, material stuff and that it will be glorified, but in his flesh he will see God. And this is what he says, I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to be there in my identity, in my knowledge, in my history, in my background, in everything about who I am, I will be there to see the Redeemer standing upon this redeemed earth. Jesus himself, when he was trying to, to get it through the disciples' heads that he, it was really him, he says, it is I myself. It's a, it's a, it's a double intent with the Greek to say, it's, I'm deadly serious, it's me. Not just a, an apparition, not just a, a, a copy of what I was, but it is me, myself. Which brings me to my third point I want to make here about our memories of life on earth. We have repeated evidence in the Bible that we will carry our memories with us into this new and glorious kingdom. When Samuel was brought back to earth by Saul and by the witch of Endor, he knew exactly who, who uh, Saul was. And he rebuked Saul and he talked about their past experience and he, and he reminded Saul about the prophecy that the kingdom would be stripped from Saul and be given to one of more noble character. And of course, he was speaking of David. But Samuel, even after he was dead and came back from Abraham's bosom and was disturbed by this, uh, by this witch of Endor, was able to remember everything that happened on the planet prior to his death. The rich man in Gehenna remembered um, not only the good things that he enjoyed on earth, but also his brothers and his family that he was concerned about on planet earth. The martyrs in the third heaven in Revelation 6 remembered the injustice of their persecutors and wanted to know when it would be corrected and made right. That's memory. That's memory of earth and what happened in this existence. And then, of course, the nail-scarred hands and feet of Jesus were told about in Revelation 5-6. Uh, are going to be there for our memory. We're gonna, they're going to be constant reminders of what happened and the price that was paid and the agony that the Lamb went through in order for our redemption to be purchased. Now, it's interesting because in Isaiah 65, 17, it says that heaven, uh, in heaven, the formal things, former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. And I want to address that because it's a very similar statement to what was made in Jeremiah 31, 34, when God said, I will remember their sins no more. It's not that God has amnesia. It's not that God, uh, his, his hard drive was erased when it came to our sins, but it means that he makes a choice to never ever remember those parts of our life ever again. Our sin will never be recalled by him again. And that's a choice he's making. And I believe in the same way 
that when we have memories of earth, we will have a choice of what we want to remember and not remember. I can hardly, I can hardly fathom a heaven where we can't spend time recounting the glory of God's work on earth. I just can't imagine it, of the victory that God has had in our life. I can't imagine, like right now in this life, one of my great joys is recounting the work of God in my life and hearing the recounting of God's work in the lives of others. I just really, really love that. I love hearing testimonies. When people ask about this property and how the whole thing happened, I love to recount the miracle after miracle after miracle story of the power of God. And I believe that when we get to the kingdom of God, we're going to enjoy that same type of memory and of recounting of the glories of God. And I believe that finally, we're going to have unbelievable capabilities. If our resurrected bodies in relationship to Christ are any indication of what's coming, we know that Jesus in his resurrected body was capable of appearing and disappearing at his choice in his own will whenever he wanted to. And we know that during the road to Emmaus because suddenly he appeared and after they discovered who he was and fellowshiped with him, it just said, and then he was gone. He just disappeared from their sight. And they went on and told the disciples about it. But Jesus in his resurrected body had the power to, to just appear and disappear at will wherever and whenever he wanted to. We also know that Jesus' resurrected body was able to pass through locked doors. In John 20, 19, when the disciples were trembling with fear for their lives in the upper room and they had locked and barred the door, it says that Jesus came and stood among them. I mean, they were just absolutely blown away. But Jesus had this power to take this mass, this material of life, this resurrected body, and pass right through doors. And I believe it's not because he was a spirit or because he was some sort of a phantom, but I believe that's part of the new property of your body in the kingdom of God, is that you're going to be able to, to, uh, to translocate yourself at, a, at just a thought, and you'll be in, in the Middle East. And then you'll translocate yourself by a thought back to your mansion in heaven. And then you'll want some, uh, to go swimming in the river of life near the tree of life. And you'll just say, you'll think it and you'll be there. I just, you, it's just unbelievable what's coming for us as the, as the saints of God. This is part and parcel of the life that God has planned for you as saints. It is so glorious and yet it is spoken of so infrequently. And yet it's the finish line in front of us. And it's the life that's waiting for those that have come to know Christ and have served him faithfully on this planet. This life that we lead here is such a shadow, such a dim view of what's coming. But it does give us at least some hints of the glory that's awaiting us. And friends, I want to encourage you that whatever you have to suffer through in this life to get to that life, whatever you have to to persevere through in order to be found faithful to God in this life, whatever you have to endure in order to bring God glory and to fill that kingdom to come with as many men and women as possible, it will be worth it all. And I want to encourage you with it that we're almost home. Especially as we watch the events unfolding in the Middle East, I'm telling you that we could be moments away from the rapture of the church. And I want to ask you a very simple question. Are you ready? Amen. Have you made your priorities such that God will say to you, well done. You lived for eternal things. Well done. You kept your eyes on the eternal things of God. You fixed them on the lasting things. Well done. You obeyed me. 
Well done, you represented me on this planet. Well done, you made disciples. Well done, you raised your children to know me. Well done, you were an exemplary husband. You were an exemplary wife. Well done. We are this close and far too much is at stake. The, 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 the reward is far too glorious to give it up for the mere trifles that the world offers. And so I want to encourage you, my friends, run your race well. Run and finish your race. Run and win your race because when you come across that finish line, the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the master of the universe and the creator of all glory and of all of creation and the new creator of the new heaven and the new earth will be on the other side of that finish line to greet you and he will wrap his arms around you and you will be so glad that you made your life count for the eternal purposes and pleasure of God Almighty. Father, we come to you this morning and we want to glory in you, God. We want to think on you. We want to do exactly what it says in Colossians 3, to set our hearts on things above, not on earthly things. To set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. For our, we've died and our life is now hidden with Christ and God. We are already citizens of that kingdom. And yet we aren't home yet. We're, we're not home yet. We're almost home, but we're not there yet. And soon and very soon, we will be in your presence and so, God, we're looking forward to it. Help us to walk with you faithfully, God. Help us not to give up. Help us not to be distracted. Help us not to sell short what you have planned for us by the whisperings of the enemy to find another way 